Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 691 with Jimena Vanguichea. Jimena has spent a career listening deeply well under the surface to discover insights, and she'll share how we can do the same. So you'll learn one, the psychological trick to help you stay in the conversation, two, the questions that create better conversations, and three, the cues to look out for within that conversation. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP691. And if you're visiting us at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some of our cool stuff. We've got the gold nugget email summaries. We've got the ability to search the full text of every transcript. We've got all 691 episodes tagged by the topic and the competency covered. So a lot of good stuff to enrich your listening experience with some reading adjuncts there. So here's a story about Jimena. Jimena Vanguachea is a user researcher, writer, and illustrator whose work on personal and professional development has been published on platforms including Inc., The Washington Post, Newsweek, and Huffington Post. She is the author of Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection by Portfolio Penguin Random House. She's a contributor at Fast Company and The Muse and writes Letters from Jimena, a newsletter on tech, culture, career, and creativity. She's best known for her project, The Life Audit. An experienced manager, mentor, and researcher in the tech industry, she previously worked at Pinterest, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Big thanks to Jimena for sharing her wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Jimena. Jimena, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to dig into your wisdom about listening. And first, I want to hear how your experience in user experience research helped you understand and think about this whole world. Yeah. So user research is a field in technology that I think not everyone is familiar with. I think of it as one of the more people-centric roles in tech. And my job as a user researcher is really to understand people and to get to know their needs and their motivations and perceptions, ultimately in order to help companies build better products. And for me, my specialty is in qualitative research. And so what that means is that the tools of the trade that I'm often using are conversation, workshops, interviews, and crucially, listening. And so a lot of the lessons that come from my experience in the UX lab in the book, I've sort of translated them into everyday world like circumstances and conversations. 
Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's intriguing. I imagine listening well can make or break the difference between getting that huge insight that that makes the product fantastically better and just being blithely unaware that that is an issue for people. Do any, oh, go ahead. No, I, I was going to just agree with you. Yes. <laughs> In the sense that when we, when you are conducting a session and you're trying to uncover a set of insights, if you are distracted by your own thoughts, or if you believe too deeply in the product that you're testing and let that bias get in the way, then that's definitely going to affect the outcome and what you're able to learn in terms of that key set of insights that you're trying to uncover. Well, could you share with us a story either from your own experience or, or someone you know who's been working with your tools where you saw such a transformation in terms of the listening got upgraded and wow, what a cool result emerged from that. Yeah. So several years ago, I was conducting a study on meal planning. So I wanted to know how do people cook? How do they meal plan? How do they budget for their meals? And I remember that there was a a really strong hypothesis on the team that certain features were sort of must have features and others were less important. And specifically at the time, there was a really strong interest in using things like voice activation in the kitchen. Um, and it sort of made sense that, you know, you're, you're cooking and so you want to be able to tell Siri or Alexa or whomever, pull up that recipe, tell me what to do next, hands-free so that you can chop and do other things. And at the same time, it also kind of felt like a very quote unquote tech kind of feature, right? Like a very Silicon Valley desire. And so one of the things that I did was I scheduled these sessions and we went out to Chicago, which felt a little more representative than the Bay Area of maybe the the broader population. And we did cook-alongs. So I interviewed people, but I also observed them in their kitchen. And we often think of listening as, you know, just using your ears, but this was a great example of using your ears and your eyes, where you're observing what someone is doing. You have all of these questions, you know, in the moment that you want to ask them, but you have to really kind of catch yourself and learn to harness some patience. Because if I were to interrupt a participant every time they moved from working on their phone to a cookbook or the back of the pasta box, if I had a question around like, oh, do you normally do that? That would totally change. It would completely alter the course of their actions. And at worst, someone might begin to perform for me and think, oh, Mm -hmm. she wants me to cook in a certain way, or she wants me to use my iPad, but not my recipe cards, which was certainly not the case. So in that study, that was an example of being able to go and immerse myself in an environment, crucially pick people who weren't necessarily like me or my group of colleagues and bring in both the aspect of listening, which is about asking questions and creating space for others, but also that observation piece and being patient and not letting that instinct that I think many of us have in conversation to say the first thing that pops into our head or ask that question right away, but instead just to take a beat instead and see what we can learn that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then so in, in doing that, I, I'm curious, did you learn what you were seeking to learn? What was the the takeaway, the insight, the aha, are people into the voice activated business or not as much? At the time it was, it turned out to not be a crucial feature and it was something that we didn't pursue. You know, I think the sort of 
less sexy, but really basic features became much more important, like being able to filter and say, I'm a vegetarian. So don't show me recipes that have meat in them, for instance, or I'm lactose intolerant. I want to only see recipes that don't have dairy. Those kinds of basic, but really important functionality end up trumping the sort of bells and whistles of anything like voice activation. And so having spent so much of your career doing listening and and you've put some of your wisdom in the book of yours, Listen It Like You Mean It, what are some of the most surprising and fascinating discoveries you've made along the way about how we listen and form connections here? Well, I think one of the biggest takeaways and maybe the most counterintuitive thing that I've learned about listening is that we have this idea when we think about listening that we're there for the other person and that it's all about the other person. And that's true. We are there to learn about someone else, but we also critically are are bringing in so much of ourselves into conversation. And in order to really be an effective listener, you have to build some self-awareness about exactly what you're bringing in. So those thoughts that you're bringing into conversation, the emotions you're bringing into a conversation, your personal experience, your personal history, either with that person or a topic, all of those things are part of what make us unique, but they're also part of what can prevent us from fully engaging and listening to another person. So it's an interesting dynamic when you want to be there for someone else, but you really also need to be kind of tracking what's going on for yourself in any given moment. Okay. So then let's hear it. The big idea with the book, Listen Like You Mean It. To what extent do you think folks are listening like they mean it? What's the state of listening today? I would say we could probably all be doing a lot better. I think most of us are are typically engaging in what I would call surface listening mode. So we are catching enough of what the other person is saying in a given moment to nod and smile, be polite, you know, to keep our relationships more or less intact, but we're only catching the literal, the surface level of what's being said. And we're often missing the subtext, the meaning beneath what's being said, and also the emotions um, behind what's being said. And I think that that, when you were able to go all the way down to the level of emotions, that's where the real human-to-human connection occurs. And that's where I think we could all be playing, um, just we could be going much deeper in our conversations. Intriguing. Well, so then could you maybe give us a demonstration here between what surface listening looks, sounds, feels like versus the, the deeper listening that creates the connections? Yeah, surface listening, that is something where you're you're catching a little bit, but you're also engaging in those thoughts that are running through your head. You might be thinking about your to-do list or um, maybe you're in a meeting and thinking, okay, I've already heard enough. I know what I need to do. I can tune out now or start on my list of action items. Or maybe we are kind of missing that the other person is upset or has is having some strong emotional response. We're, we're just not tracking that. Whereas empathetic listening is, you know, when that thought comes up that we're distracted or we're we're creating that to-do list, it's noticing that and it's going, oh, okay, I'm getting distracted. Let me come back to center. Or it's noticing that we're having an emotional response to something and saying, oh, you know what? I'm feeling my throat start to tighten up a little bit. I'm feeling my chest start to pound a little bit. I'm having an emotional response. Let me see if I can center myself before returning to this conversation. So it's about tracking those things and then returning to the present and being there for someone else. 
And so then in practice, if we've got other thoughts going on or emotional reactions and such, how do we just stop (laughs) and return? (laughs) I mean, do you write them down, your extraneous thoughts, or is there a mantra or a trick either with your mind or your body? How do we return? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's less about trying to forever stop those thoughts because I think even meditation experts would say it's not like you have a completely blank mind. It's just becoming aware of those thoughts and and acknowledging them. So I recommend a trick that psychologists use in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is labeling. And so that is actually saying in your head, I am being distracted by this thought, right? Or I am having this response. So you're labeling it. That helps you release it. Other things that can be helpful, one mantra that can be helpful is reminding yourself that if it's really important, the thought is going to come back to you. Typically, that's the case. We kind of, we sometimes get nervous and want to cling to every thought that comes into our mind, but the really, really important ones tend to come back to us. And then I also recommend focusing on the emotions of what's being said. Sometimes we're so caught up in trying to capture all the details. Like there's a tendency to want to write everything down in a conversation or take copious notes, but you will remember if someone is upset or confused or stressed, and that's the thing to hone in on. And so if you can give yourself the benefit of the doubt of, okay, if I can get the emotion, the rest will follow, that can also relieve some of the the anxiety around, I have to jot everything down right now. And so then how do we go about getting to the emotion? Like, are there, because in some ways it just seems like people, some people just intuitively just do this and, and others don't. So if, if you don't, how do you start? Yeah. So part of it is coming into conversation with what I call listening mindset, and that's bringing in humility, curiosity, and empathy. And that's different than how we normally show up in conversation, which is often we are bringing in our own assumptions or opinions or ideas. And this is really about creating space for someone else. So humility is taking the position of a student rather than an expert and reminding yourself that there's something that you can learn from the other person. Curiosity is taking that a bit deeper by asking questions, asking in particular open-ended questions that allow the other person to lead the way. And then empathy is tapping into their emotional experience, not in the sense that you have to have shared a given experience. Maybe someone is has just been laid off and you have not been laid off. And so you don't know exactly what that feels like, but you probably have some idea of what it feels like to grieve over something that you thought you had and no longer have or to experience something like shame over that. And so it's tapping into those emotions as well. And all of these are really about shifting the focus away from yourself and towards another person. Yeah, that's nifty. And I think sometimes it's tempting, it may even really be the case that you know way more about something (laughs) than the person that you're listening to does. But I imagine you've got some some suggestions when that's the case. What do we do there? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, because I think when we do have a given level of expertise, those are the moments that are often the hardest to set that aside and really listen to the other person. So in that case, I recommend asking yourself, what else? Like, what else can I learn here? 
even if I have expertise, what else might I learn? And specifically, what can I learn about this other person? So maybe there's a topic that you're a whiz at. Maybe it's like personal finances or something like that. Okay, so maybe you're not going to learn much more from this person about that topic, but what is their talking about this topic tell you about them and how they relate to you, to this conversation, to that topic at large? So it's looking for other threads. It's looking for understanding someone else's expertise. And that expertise may just be their lived experience. That's what they're an expert in. And you can learn something from that. Certainly. And then with curiosity, it's funny. Sometimes I've got tons of curiosity and sometimes I just don't care if I'm just going to be real blunt and honest about it. So I'd like to be curious. (laughs) I, I feel like that's the person I aspire to be. So if curiosity isn't naturally bubbling up, what do you recommend? Yeah. So I think this is somewhat common. I mean, I think we all have topics that we're not naturally interested in and that's okay. And then I think in this case, you're looking for what's the overlap maybe between the other person's interest and your interest. So to give a tangible example, in the book, I talk about sports as not being my personal thing. It's something that I struggle to pay attention to and really focus. Yeah. And if my husband is talking about sports, you know, I have a couple of options. I could totally tune out and say, hey, I'm not the sports wife, so we're not going to talk about that. That's probably not going to go over super well. Or I can try and find something that I'm interested in that overlaps with what he's interested in. And in my case, something that I know about myself is I'm interested in people and I'm interested in their stories. So if I can get the conversation away from the scoreboard to tell me about the coaches, tell me about the team dynamics, tell me about their rituals That's interesting to me and it's interesting to him. So you're looking for that sort of overlap between two interests. And that's where you can start to tug and have a pretty interesting conversation. That's clever. And and what's funny is that is, I'm thinking about the Olympics. Like that's exactly what they always do. So we got this sport and then we go, you know, to, to zoom in on the Olympians life and their childhood and their history and their dedication and their story and their difficulties. <laughs> and I think they do it because it works. Okay. If we're trying to maximize the viewership, we're going to need to do more than just fancy uh, triple axle spins on the, on the ice skating rink or, or running really fast on the track. We're going to have to go there to rope in all the more folks. People like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a really lovely example. Let, let's go with, you know, I'm just going to put you on the spot here with another one. Boy, I get a little bit glazed over when we talk about like compliance, mm. accounting things. Mm-hmm. It's funny, except as I recall some of the conversations with my accountant, except when we're discovering opportunities to to save on taxes. I was like, what? <laughs> I could do that? Oh, wow. That's amazing. Like I get really jazzed. So I guess there, there's one example there, but I'll ask you to do the same. So if, and maybe you're into that, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but how what might you curiously maneuver into a fun place there? Yeah. Well, I think one thing I'll caveat is that you're not always going to maneuver into a fun place, but you will maneuver somewhere. So in the case of something like accounting and compliance, those, those topics that leave you with eyes glazed over, if there's not an obvious thread, if there's not an obvious overlap that you can pull at, and this is a conversation that 
you kind of need to have and you need to be present for, like it's important. (laughs) Another thing that you can do is to look for the underlying need. So what is the other person need from this conversation need particularly from you in this conversation Mm -hmm. and in some cases it's going to be really obvious in some cases it's not going to be obvious but you're looking for what is the need and how can i meet it so maybe the conversation about compliance is super boring but there's a need there for you to approve something (laughs) or for you to sign off on something the sooner you can uncover that need the sooner you can meet it the sooner you can have a different kind of conversation Uh or talk to someone else. Right. And so sometimes when you are looking for that common ground, it is about extending the conversation. Sometimes it is about being more efficient with the conversation and just tuning in more quickly to what is the other person trying to get out of this conversation with me? Okay. And then as, as we're listening for emotions, are there particular signs, indicators that you're, you're on the lookout for in terms of vocal intonation or facial expressions. Like I'm thinking about, we had a former FBI agent, uh, Joe Navarro, who wrote Everybody is Listening on the podcast. And that was fun. So, but I guess I'm curious, are there particular signals that grab your attention or you proactively look out for? Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest thing that I look for is a change over the course of the conversation. So if someone starts out speaking in measured tones or at a deliberate, even pace, and then suddenly speeds up or their pitch changes in some way. That's something that I would want to pay attention to and try and figure out if the topic has changed or if they no longer feel safe in the conversation or suddenly do. So we're looking for or listening for a shift. Certainly body language is part of that. So I'm familiar with Joe Navarro's work and he talks about where your feet are pointing. So someone can be looking at you eye to eye, but their feet are pointing towards the door. And that's a tell that maybe they're ready to leave the conversation and just haven't been able to articulate it. He also talks about collarbone, like neck touching as a self-soothing mechanism. If you've ever seen somebody play with their collar, that kind of thing. So you're tracking voice and tone and body language, and also obviously what they're saying as well. And I think it can be hard to deduce if someone is not explicit, if someone doesn't explicitly say, I'm really upset about X. Sometimes it's obvious that they are upset and we just need to ask about it. Other times we have to feel around and they're also feeling around in conversation. And so you're listening for things like literally, I feel like, right? When people use the word, I feel, or if someone says, I'm swamped with, Okay, well, that's interesting. They're underwater. Do they feel overwhelmed and underwater? Do they feel under pressure and underwater? So you're listening for certain cues, signals in terms of what they're saying as well that you can, again, get curious about so that it's less, oh, I'm swamped. And you're like, yeah, me too. But oh, you're swamped. Oh, what's that like? What, so what, what's happening? What's on your plate? Or, and how do you feel about that? How do you feel about having such a busy schedule? That's going to have a different outcome in terms of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, let's say you pick up on some emotion. And I guess maybe talking about the connecting side of things is that what's the best way to work with that? I guess I'm just imagining if you say, it sounds like you're really upset. I mean... Sometimes that's the right thing to say, and sometimes it's not. How do you think about that? Yes, it's a good question in the sense that we're not mind readers. So we don't always know what the other person wants. But this is where I think 
there's two things that can be really helpful here. One is knowing what your default listening mode is. So what, how you usually, how you tend to hear things in conversation. Maybe you're someone who tends to hear things at an emotional level or someone who is more of a problem solver. They tend to hear things through the lens of a problem to be solved or a mediator, someone who tends to hear things through the lens of, well, what did this person think? What did that person think? How can we make sure that everybody's point of view is present here? And all of these modes are good and useful, but need to be matched to the current moment and situation. And and that's the need. That's going back to what is this person's need. So if you don't know what the need is and you don't know your default mode, then it's going to be very hard. You are going to be taking a guess when you say, hey, it sounds like you're upset, (laughs) right? You're kind of going out on a limb there to see if that's what they need. But if you're able to identify your default listening mode, then you have a little bit of a gut check. So you can check with yourself, you know, okay, my instinct is to offer advice here. Is that what's really needed? What does this person need? Sometimes it will be obvious to you because you have a personal history with them and you know, oh, this, for instance, colleague always talks around their requests. They don't say point blank, I need another resource for this. They kind of give you the long and winding road. Sometimes you won't have that context. So here's where asking clarifying questions is a great path forward. And so you can ask things like, you can say, my instinct is to offer advice. Would that be useful here? Or I actually have a similar experience. Would you like to hear how I've navigated in this in the past? Or, and I think this is the most general clarifying question, but a really useful one is, would you like me to listen or respond? Because sometimes there is nothing for us to do. And I think that's very hard for us to internalize, but the only thing to quote unquote do is to bear witness to someone else, especially when it's emotional. Yeah. And so if they're sharing something and we're not sure, we can be there with them and give them that space and maybe reflect back what they're saying because it's affirming or maybe just check in with them on what would be useful in that moment. Well, that is a beautiful question. And because it's like, because they can respond any number of ways. And that maybe you hadn't even anticipated. Because as I imagine, in my imaginary conversation I'm having, in which you've said this to me, <laughs> I could imagine saying all kinds of things like, what I need from you right now is to tell me I'm doing a great job. It's like, oh, okay. That would not have occurred to me. But yeah, I got tons of things to say about that. So glad you asked. And here we go. Or it might be, you know, what'd be awesome is if you could somehow just make hours appear in my life because things are insane. It's like, oh, well, sure. Well, hey, how about uh, you don't bother with uh, these three meetings that we got scheduled? It's like, oh, cool. And so it feels actually kind of rare mm-hmm. that someone would just ask that question and in effect is really giving a gift. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, all right, I am at your service. And somehow it feels a little bit more specific and real and meaningful than let me know how I could be helpful to you, which feels like that happens a lot in, in, in conversations of like a networky format. And it's funny because I never quite really know <laughs> what I should ask for. Because uh, it's like, well, I mean, if you want to like promote the crap out of the podcast, that'd be great. <laughs> but it, it just, but whereas when it's seated in a conversation, you say it like that, it goes, okay, well, yeah, here's, here is really what I need from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think those other questions that you're mentioning are hard to respond to. They're so broad. They're so vague, right? Yeah. I like the question of, would you like me to listen or respond? Also, because it gives you two mm-hmm. options. It gives it gives right. someone something tangible to respond to. 
And usually the response, the actual need is what they've been trying to say. Maybe implicitly, maybe they haven't been able to explicitly say, Hey, what I really need from you right now is to feel supported. And here's how you can do that. You know, or, or maybe they thought they were saying that like most of us aren't very practiced at being explicit in expressing our needs. And so offering this question is a really gentle way of saying, I am here for you and you can guide me in the way that would be most helpful to you in this moment. Yeah, that's great. Well, so that was a lovely question there. Can you share with us any other favorite phrases, questions that, uh, that you just love and are, are very versatile and useful in many conversations or maybe some... Some phrases, words, questions that you don't love and would probably be better off losing them or using them much less frequently. Yeah. So I would say this is where the type of questions you ask really can make a a big difference in conversations. So we're often not really paying attention to the questions we ask and they can be leading or biased in some way. And they, they might, you know, those questions that just they don't take the conversation anywhere. They end in one word responses or yes or no responses. They tend to be closed ended in nature. And so that's questions that start with do, is, or are. Um, you know, for example, are you nervous about tomorrow's presentation? Are you nervous about this meeting? That suggests that the person might have reason to be nervous, which maybe they should be, or maybe that's your own, your nervousness being projected onto someone else. You're going to get a very different response than if you start out with something more open-ended, like a how or a what question. How do you feel about tomorrow's presentation? Okay, now the person can say, I'm super excited about it. Like, I'm stoked and I'm ready to go, which is a totally different response than where we were leading them earlier. So I think shifting from close-ended to open-ended questions is key. And then the other thing I would say is, To avoid having too open of a conversation where the conversation is just like so broad and sprawling, you also do want to have handy follow-ups in your pocket. And so those follow-ups, if there's a thread that's particularly interesting or promising, you can say something like, oh, say more about that or what else or tell me more. Um, Or one that I really like is just to say, oh, and that's because... So whatever it is I said earlier, I ask, oh, because, and then the person will naturally fill it in. So you have both the open-ended questions and then these gentle nudges that keep the conversation going. What's lovely about that, oh, and that's because, is that it's, well, it's much less defensiveness provoking than why. (laughs) Yes. But why? It's like, explain yourself, (laughs) like an interrogation, whereas, oh, and that's because is effectively a why without the threat. So that's cool. Yeah. And that's why I don't recommend asking why very often. Mm-hmm. Of course, we all want to know why, right. but it does sound defensive to our ears. And so you can ask the question of why in a different way using that's because, or even how do you feel about that? Or what do you make of that? You know, again, those how and what to start to get at the why without kind of grading on the other person's ears. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And then I'm curious when it comes to the third part of your book is is about resting and recharging. That's, well, hey, I'm all about resting and recharging, but I didn't expect to see that in a book about listening. So what's the importance of this and, and how do we do it well? 
Well, I felt this was really important to include in the book because when you are practicing this type of listening, where you are getting down to this emotional level and just really past the surface, it does take work and it is a natural side effect of this kind of listening to feel a little bit drained. It's almost a sign of good listening at play. It's like when you go out and you have a good workout, you're excited, but you're also a little bit tired afterwards. And so we want to be able to take care of ourselves so that we don't push ourselves too far. Because I think a real risk, if we're not careful with this kind of listening, is that we start to create space for someone else in a conversation and we never take up space ourselves. So we become a sort of vessel for receiving everybody else's feelings without having that same care and support returned to us, which really just means that the conversation has moved from a dialogue probably to a monologue where we're on the receiving end of it. So we don't want to go that far. But so ways that you can take care of yourself in the process are thinking about things like what's your magic number in terms of the amount of these kinds of conversations you can have a day and how do they need to be distributed throughout your day? So really concretely, when I was managing a team, I remember in the very beginning, I would try and stack my one-on-ones like get, okay, I'll do all my one-on-ones on Tuesdays. We'll just do them back to back and we'll bang them out. And I was exhausted by the end of it. And I also frankly, wasn't doing a great job of listening because I would be context switching from one person's challenges to the next without having taking a beat to pause and breathe. And so in my case, I learned, yeah, you probably shouldn't have five back-to-back one-on-ones in a day, you should maybe try and spread those out over the course of the week or do a couple on one day and a couple on another day. So it's about figuring out what is your magic number? How many of these kinds of conversations can you have effectively where you're still listening and not exhausted? What kind of breaks can you have in between? And I talk to a lot of people who say, well, I'm not in control of my calendar. (laughs) Like I am at the mercy of my calendar. So what do I do then? And And to that, I say, you can always take a 90 second breather in between meetings. Just you're taking a little bit of a palate cleanser to reset, to say, okay, this person just gave me this. I'm going to put it aside. And now I'm going to be present for the next conversation. So even if it's a micro break, that becomes really, really important for helping you keep things running along. Well, now I'm curious. In a 90-second micro-break, what are some great things to do that make a, a world of rejuvenation difference in just a few seconds? I'll do some sharing right now. I, I'm, I'm taking a look at my silent mini refrigerator in my office, which is pretty wild. It emits no noise, uh, which I like for recording. And I have a bin of water, a little Tupperware bit of water that's cold, and I will shove my face in it. Mm. That's weird, but there's cool science behind it. The mammalian uh, dive reflex. And when you stick your face in cold water, you wake up in a hurry. So uh, that's one of my quick rejuvenation rituals. I'd love to hear what, what you and others do that makes for some great recharging for more listening uh, in a short amount of time. Yeah. So I think it could be something like that. It could be a, maybe a more toned down version, like just splashing water on your face, like room temperature water on your face could also maybe give you a version of that. But yeah, another thing that you can do is to take like those 90 seconds and write down every thought that comes into your mind, just like brain dump it out because sometimes that's what we're holding on to in between sessions. So you can just write it 
and release it that way. Sometimes just closing your eyes, like literally just like closing your eyes, set a timer if you want, think about whatever you want that can do it too. Don't use that 90 second micro break for doom scrolling for, you know, news reading or social media. It's not going to have the same effect. It's probably just going to cloud things even further. And then I also think there are certain mantras that you can repeat, especially if you are in a profession where you're or in a role where you're going to be carrying something kind of on someone else's behalf, where you can say, okay, this isn't mine to keep. This doesn't belong to me. I can safely let this go. That's especially useful, let's say, if you're in a caregiving role or industry, something where you're really taking on someone else's emotions. All right. Well, Jimena, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I think the last thing that I'll mention, and I hope that this is clear from this conversation, but I think we often think about speaking, presentation skills, effectively negotiating, influencing as those are things that can be learned. And we think of listening as something that people are innately good at or not. And so we we might write it off a little bit if we're not one of those people who's just magically good at it. But it really can be learned. It's a skill just like any other. And that's ultimately what the book is trying to do is to really explicitly lay out what are some of those techniques so that you can begin to take them up and practice them in your in your everyday. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yes. So a quote that I love is never judge a man until you've walked two moons in his shoes. And that's from a book called Walk Two Moons. And it's really about empathy. It's about not judging someone and understanding that people have rich lives beyond what we know and making space for that to be the case, which I find helpful in general, but especially when you're the day someone cuts you off while you're driving or if someone's slightly rude to you in a meeting, it's like, okay, something else is going on. It's probably not about me. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I find myself often returning to Sherry Turkle's work. So she is the author of Reclaiming Conversation and several other books. She looks at the intersection of society and technology, and she's done a lot of research on how devices are changing our conversations in person. Things like how even having a cell phone on the table, even if it's face down, decreases our ability to empathize with the other person in conversation. So I find her uh, work to be very interesting. And a favorite book? A favorite book. I mean, I do return to reclaiming conversation quite a bit. So it's certainly top of mind. And another book that I just finished, which is a totally different topic, is called Big Friendship. And it looks at maybe underrated relationship in our lives that doesn't get much attention, but it talks about relationships specifically in the context of friendship and how we treat those versus other relationships in our lives. Uh And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I really love analog tools. So my favorite being post-its and Sharpies. I find that I'm far less precious with my thoughts and that I don't get overly attached to ideas. You know, if I start something where I'm just in a deck and I'm immediately trying to work on a presentation that way, things look better than they are. If you just write them on a sticky note, you kind of know that that's the rough draft and I find it easier to rework ideas that way. So when you say precious, it means you're you're more attached to it the more it's all digitally dressed up and beautified. Yes. It feels like this is something that I cannot throw away or dramatically rework because of the trappings. 
Yeah. And I think you also tend to rework in minor ways, right? So you'd be like, oh, something's off with this sentence. Right. Let me move the comma or fiddle with this thing. And it's like, well, something might be off with the idea. Yeah. So post-its allow you to work at the level of the idea. And then once you've gotten beyond that, then sure, go and refine and prettify your deck and do all of that stuff. That's true. And I also find that when I'm in the constraint of a slide, it's sort of like, well, this is the point I'm making. And this is the cool chart that I have. So I only have this box to do the thing. It's like, well, maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be confined to that box in the first place. And so the format kind of pre-ordained or influenced the the content uh, prematurely. So, well, I'm going to chew on that. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And a favorite habit. A favorite habit, taking breaks in terms of taking walks. Like if I'm stuck on a a challenging topic or can't break through, I have learned to step away from the screen (laughs) and just take a walk. And, you know, I think our brains will often noodle things on things on our behalf when we're not paying attention. All right. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you frequently? I think the default listening modes really resonates with people because they can easily identify a mode. And whenever you have a type, you feel like, okay, I get this now. And then the other one I would say is the role of silence in conversations is something that has come up a lot where I talk about waiting 10 seconds, waiting a little bit longer than is comfortable in order to give the other person space. And that seems to be resonating with people because it's hard and it goes counter to what we usually think about silence and conversation. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, best place to get in touch is on my website. So that's himenavanguichea.com. And that's got, it's kind of the hub for all of the offshoots, social media, newsletter, book, all that good stuff. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would say do your best to uncover what that hidden need is in conversation, especially in professional settings. The person's job function, whether they're in marketing or sales or design, is a really good starting clue to uncovering that need. All right. Jimena, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you many great conversations. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciated the way Jimena broke down that listening mindset, the humility, the curiosity, and the empathy. I think it does a really good job of capturing the main reasons in my own experience why I do poor listening. When I do poor listening, it's either because I don't think I've got much to learn from this person, or I'm not that interested in what they say, Or I am just not connecting to the emotional side of the story, like in a great movie or TV series. That's what hooks you. And I'm just sort of not finding it. So having that little checklist really helps me dial into, ah, what's missing here? And then how can I go surface that to have a better conversation and more listening, more being the person I want to be in that conversation. So huge thanks to Jimena. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP691. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.